The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Portfolio Manager at Intelligent Investor. And as always, I'm joined by Alex Hughes, our small cap fund manager. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nathan. Hi, everyone. It's been a couple of weeks now, mate, but I really should say commiserations for losing the World Cup. I know. <laughs> what, what a game, though. That was incredible. What about the worst way to lose it, though, just on the count back? Yeah, I feel like we need to have another game, to be honest. That was, yeah, pretty painful. But um, yeah, credit to England. They did really well. I know they used to have that for the Brownlow medal, which is the best AFL player uh, in in Australia or the VFL as it used to be. And they worked out many years later that it was unfair to give a count back uh, when there was a tie. So instead of the person ending up with the medal just for having the most three votes, rather than if you're more consistent, had a lot more two votes. And uh, they went back and uh, retrospectively gave all the uh, people who missed out on the medal, they gave them a Brownlow medal. So maybe in 20 years, the Kiwis can go and claim their medal. (laughs) <laughs> all right the more serious stuff uh the first question is hey fellas would like your thoughts on iph thanks mitch yeah iph so this is a listed ip law firm um and it's quite interesting that australia has been world leading in terms of experimenting with listing law firms and the first crop were the slater and gordon and shines of this world and that didn't end particularly well um they have inferior business models where they've got lots of work in progress and um, the cash generation is much lower. Um, but the IP law firms seem to be different in that they bill their customers a lot more regularly. Um, and so the cash conversion is much better and their balance sheets are cleaner. And so there's, you can have more faith in their earnings power. Um, they are still people-based businesses though. So the employees have an intimate relationship with the customers. And so there's always risk to that. They could um, leave and take customers with them. Um, but in saying that, they these listed law, uh, IP law firms seem to have had success at consolidating the market and um, they've got some of the big customers on board and perhaps that means that the, the big customers are less likely to you know break out and go with a, a one-man band type thing. So perhaps it, it will be more stable. Um, so the, the, these are quite um, cash generative businesses that produce quite nice returns on capital and that type of thing. Um, I suspect over time, being bigger may have some advantages, um, you know, with technology, um, automating mundane tasks and that type of thing, um, which IPH is well placed for, given that they're the biggest in Australia and parts of Asia. Um, But in terms of valuation, it's trading on about 27 times now. Um, There was a a few years back, it fell out of favour with the market and in hindsight, that was a really great time to buy. Um, But on 27 times, I'm less sure. What are your, what's your view now? I was going to ask you a question. IPH, they seem to be lending um, more money now against future cases. I just wondering whether is that a real change to the business model or is it something they've been doing for a long time? Um, well, my understanding of the business model is that this is an IP law firm, so it assists um, firms that develop technology and want to protect that with IP. And it, it assists them to do that, um, you know, because there's maintenance of um the legal requirements there, you obviously need to understand what the technology is and um, pinpoint what that piece of innovation is and um, and then um, spend a lot of time protecting that and making sure no one's infringing uh, on, on that technology. So that's what they do. Um, I think they've got a sticky customer base. There's a growing 
number of patents and, and just IP protection generally in the Asian region, um, predominantly from some of the faster growing Asian nations. Um, but in terms of um, funding class actions and that type of thing, that's that's not this space. The, these guys are strictly IP law as far as I'm aware. Okay, so the presentation uh, I went to recently was with the IPH CEO and he talked about the real jewel in the business has historically been the Singapore business. Uh, I don't really know what the background to that is, but it's just been a, a great business. And now with the acquisition of Zenith, effectively what's happening is they're diluting um, that jewel. So I think it's 75% of revenues or profits from here on will come from Australia. And I assume it's Australia is not the greatest place, I don't think, for a lot of these technology stuff. Uh, there's some, if you have a look at the presentation slides uh, for IPH. So there's a slide in there that shows the number of patent filings uh, in Australia and it compares it with Europe and, and China, for example, and it's just tiny in Australia. So I don't know how much more growth they can bring out of Australia, but I think it's uh, an unfortunate fact that they're uh, going to dilute what's been the gem in Singapore uh, at 27 times earnings, though I don't think there's any secret about how consistent uh, the revenue should be in this business. And the CEO talked about just how sticky the customers are because the last thing you want to do is change uh, one of these patents or move to another provider or another lawyer. And these things just have so many little details and it's, and it's all about dates. It's really, really important that you submit all your paperwork according to the dates. Otherwise, you lose the patent. So it's a really, really high risk for not very much um, value to shift. So they are really sticky customers and uh, that, in that sense, it makes it a good business. Hello, I'm interested in your thoughts on Kathmandu Holdings Limited. Uh, the share price has been falling in 2009. It seems that every second person is wearing a Kathmandu jacket this winter. Is there a problem with the balance sheet, the Amazon effect, or people don't need to buy jackets very often? Cheers, Greg. It's funny, I, I was actually thinking that last night. I noticed on the train that there's lots of people wearing those Kathmandu jackets. And even MacPack jackets, where MacPack seems to be just copying Kathmandu. Um, but in terms of the business... Um, I, I see this as a reasonably mature um, New Zealand business. Um, it's also reasonably mature here in Australia, um, but it's growing quickly in the US off a low base. Um, they do have some debt. Uh, it's about $50 million on a net basis, which I don't think is an enormous concern um, unless the business turns south materially. Um, like-for-like sales have been somewhat weak recently, um, especially in New Zealand. Um, that's been offset by their online stores, which have performing have been performing better um, but my general rule with retailers is that you only really want to buy them when they've got a, a strong store rollout profile ahead of them a mature retailer is subject um, to competition obviously like any business um, but there's fewer levers for them to grow their earnings and they're more reliant on like for like sales and it's difficult to grow that consistently over time so I think you want to get interested in retailers when they've got a big growth path ahead and for me, for Kathmandu, I'd need to be really confident about the US expansion. Um, so, yeah, for me, need to, need to do a lot more work on, on that to get comfortable. I probably go skiing once every three to four years. And I love going shopping there because everything's cheap and it's really good quality. But the fact is, I just don't need this stuff very often. And if you buy those jackets, which I actually wear one uh, similar one riding my bike during winter, they just don't wear out. You just don't need to buy one every year. So uh, I think that restricts the growth from a business like this. I just want to raise a, uh, an important question, I think, for people who are particularly looking for income stocks. And it's just getting harder and harder in Australia to find, uh, like it's almost impossible to find a genuinely cheap uh, stock that pays a good dividend. 
And the temptation is to do riskier things to get that extra yield. But I just want to, um, you know, I'm not a personally an income investor and this next stock uh, isn't in our portfolios, but we published a review on it on the Intelligent Investor website uh, earlier this week. The company is Atlas Arteria and it's essentially the French version of Transurban. It has a, I think it's a 20 or 30% stake in uh, this giant uh, toll road in France. And history shows that it's much better to own long toll roads than it is short toll roads. If you have a look at the experience in Australia, the shortest toll roads tend to be the ones that have gone bust three or four times and ended up with a much different owner, usually transurban at the end of it. So it's a really profitable uh, business, but it doesn't have uh, the length of tenure of owning these assets uh, compared to a transurban, uh, at least some of the roads. But it's a company that is priced much better than transurban it's probably not going to grow as quickly, but you're getting around a 4% dividend yield. Uh, now, obviously, that comes from overseas, so it doesn't uh, have franking benefits or anything like that. Uh, but it's 3 or 4% uh, growth at least, and they're internalizing the management uh, at the moment. So there's potentially some optionality if management can do some smart things. Maybe they can raise some capital and find other roads to buy. So none of that's in the share price. Uh, and again, you don't want to be paying for that, but it's just, uh, I think once you get internalised management, these sorts of things that uh, can lead to uh, increased value in these businesses. But it's just the sort of business that if I was an, uh, an income investor and I was really stuck for ideas and I was looking for some decent diversification from a very high quality asset uh, and that pays a decent distribution, it's the sort of thing I'd be looking at and be happy to get a perhaps a 7 to 8% total return uh, rather than some of the other riskier ideas that I've seen people have. Yeah, it's interesting, Nath, to hear that it has a 4% yield, that which sounds really high to me given interest rates throughout much of the world. Well, certainly the consensus view is that they're heading towards zero, if not negative, in many parts. Is, is there some reason why it's yielding uh, so much? I, I don't know exactly what the reason is, but I know the traffic growth has been um, almost going backwards on some of their roads recently. So I just think that's keeping a bit of a lid on the share price. Um, it's interesting, well, I don't know if interesting is the word, but um, Mario Draghi, who's the outgoing chief of the European Central Bank, uh, keeping in mind that the official interest rate in Europe at the moment is negative 0.4%, and the talk is that he's going to lower it again to negative 0.5%, uh, which I just think is ridiculous. I think if you haven't learned that low interest rates don't do anything uh, at this point, uh, then you're not going to. But I just think Australia is heading in the same direction. Uh, I don't think we're going to have negative deposit rates, but uh, we're certainly on our way to zero. And if the housing market were to roll over at some point, uh, then there's no reason why we won't, won't be having 0% interest rates as I've written up before. Or maybe we have our own idea of uh, quantitative easing, although I don't know exactly what that would look like. But in that scenario, I think a 7 or 8% return from a quality asset like this would actually be pretty good. Yeah, if not incredible, if if other if the risk free rate is approaching now zero. Now, something uh, the completely opposite end of the risk spectrum, Donico. Yeah, Donico. So this is at the complete other end of the risk spectrum. So this is a, a, a casino business that owns two casinos in Southeast Asia, and we own it in our small company fund, and we bought in, into it in January after it, it had a disastrous year, and the share price hit all time lows. Um, this business was founded by the founders of Genting, which is sort of like the Malaysian equivalent of the Packer family here in Australia. Um, and 
the, the business had a really tumultuous year. Um, you could almost make a movie about it. So there was a board member that breached a non-compete clause and he began competing next door with Donico. Um, there were even Chinese gangsters that threatened some gamblers. Um, the CEO defaulted on a margin loan and lost his 27% stake in the business. And two institutions dumped their stock on market. So, you know, a, a very, very difficult year. Um, when we first looked at the business, um, it had a $50 million valuation. Um, they'd repaid $100 million of debt in the last three years. And they had acquired their casino assets for over $500 million. Um, so we could see some clear problems, but it looked like a really low valuation. Now, the, the reason I'm mentioning it today is because there seems to be a turning point, particularly this week, um, with um, the founder of Vocus, James Spenceley, and Perpetual's Jack Calopy calling an EGM, and they actually rolled um, two directors. Um, these were the Lim brothers who's, uh, who founded the business, along with their grandfather, um, so it's a new chapter in the company's path, and so there will be a refreshed board and a new CEO in place. And to me, um, they've had their problems, undoubtedly, um, but with the right management in place, I, I can see a number of opportunities for improvement here. And um, as I mentioned about the cash flow, you know, there, there's a lot to work with there, and there's potentially lots, lots of value on offer. So some of the easy things for the, the management team to do here, I think, is um, firstly, the debt refinancing. So they've got this really restrictive debt facility in place, which prevents them from paying dividends or buying back stock. Now, they don't actually have much debt. It's very comfortable in terms of interest coverage and things like that. And they'll actually be debt-free in a few years under the uh, mandated repayments. Um, but if they're able to refinance that, which I think they're well positioned to do when they have more time to do so, um, that could unlock capital for capital management. Um, secondly, they've got an arbitration, um, which is in the Singaporean arbitration courts, where they're actually suing that ex-board member um, who is competing illegally with them next door. Now, um, the headline value is $270 million Australian. I don't think they'll get anywhere near that, but just the removal of this uncertainty, I think, will be a big positive. Um, there, there could be some sort of finan financial compensation. Perhaps if they're successful, it'll mean less competition. Um, but something like that has the potential to really just improve the outlook for the business. And lastly, there's the potential for a takeover. So um, there was a Thai outfit that recently bought 20% of the business at 100% premium, uh, actually more than that to the current price. So th there's a possibility that it, it could be acquired. And, and in fact, they've had numerous approaches there. So um, that could be something that could play out over a number of years. Um, so... Again, this is a really sort of a deep value situation. It's a, it's a risky business, predominantly because they've got border casinos. Um, that means that they locate their casinos on the border of countries where gambling is illegal. So their Cambodian casino um, serves the Thai market because gambling is illegal in Thailand. And their Vietnamese casino is on the border of China um, because gambling is legal in China. So um, it's risky as um, if legislation changes, um, even though it doesn't look likely in the near future. Um, but um, that, that's something to be mindful of. So it's not a business you'd put a lot of money into, but um, given just how low the share price is relative to the cash flow and given the, the catalyst that we can see, um, it looks to be a situation where it's possible. Anything more money. amazing than the story behind it, this stock or this business is that you can buy the whole thing for around $100 million at the moment and they bought a different casino a little while back for it was about $500 million. 
So they actually own two casinos, and um, which I'm I don't know what um, the book value for the Cambodian uh, casino is, but there's essentially almost a billion dollars of casinos wrapped up in a hundred million dollar market cap. Uh, So clearly they overpaid for one of them, but. Uh, nonetheless, we should declare you own it in the small cap fund. Do you own it personally as well, Alex? Yeah, so do I. Very yes, I position. do. Um, the next one is <laughs> Australasian yes. Academies. Um, yep, so this is another business we own in the small company fund. I also own it, own it personally. It's a legacy holding of mine for a number of years ago. Um, they in, uh, provided guidance this week for their full year result. And this business has, has been a quiet plotter, sort of a quiet achiever over a number of years. It's a small vocational educational provider here in Australia. And they've announced 9 million of EBITDA, which is their best performance ever. Um, this business has been around for over 100 years. It's been listed since the 70s, I think, from memory. Um, it's the longest listed educational company. Um, they went through a really difficult time. They made a, a bad acquisition in the domestic space. Um, they're predominantly an international education business, and they tried to diversify and um, they did so really poorly. Um, and so that really hurt the company, and it was at that time that we got interested. Um, but since then, the business has just gone back to basics and just, and just focus on its international business. And the directors own most of the company. Um, if you look at the market announcements, the most common announcement you'll see is just director buying. Um, and so it's really off the radar for most institutional investors. The closest comparable is Red Hill Education, um, I think most people would describe it as being more institution, institutional friendly. Um, and they're very similar in size and that type of thing, although Red Hill trades at a much a larger valuation. Um, and I think that's largely just to AKG is, is really sort of closed off. It just sort of focuses on its business. The, the directors own most of the company anyway, so they don't have a great incentive to promote the story. Um, but if they keep on operating as they are, generating good cash and paying it, paying most of it out as dividends, then I think there's, you know, quite a quite a decent return from um, even the current price. Um, the valuation of the business now is $60 million. I think they'll have over $15 million of net cash and they've just announced $9 million of EBITDA. So um, it's been plodding along, um, generating cash and, and, you know, quietly improving. So, so yeah, it's not spectacular, but it's been a... It's um, amazing yeah, to stay the last plot. six months in particular, looking at the... Uh, performance of the big index in Australia. I think the uh, average stock in the top 20 stocks in Australia went up 20% in the last or in the six months ending June. And then if you have a look at the small cap index, uh, it, I think it was up like 1% and the micro cap index might have even gone backwards 1, 1.5%. So it just shows you how bifurcated the market is at the moment. And if you've actually got the time to go and look at the small end of the market, you're much more likely to find something uh, with some real value. I just want to talk about one last mm. thing uh, in today's podcast, and, and that's tolerance for pain. And this is something that is a really important point for value investors. And at the moment, you've got a market that's running hot. Uh, the big uh, cap stocks have had a just incredible six months. Uh, even though they're mature and slow growing, they've, they've gone up on average 20% in six months. Uh, this has really just come about because of the shift in interest rate expectations. And on the other side of things, we're seeing the Waxer stocks, for example, the extremely high growth software businesses trading at absolutely, I think, crazy valuations. And at some point, the market will wake up and uh, wonder what it's done. And uh, anyone who's on the end of that is going to be in for some pain. So maybe this discussion 
um, is a good introduction for them. But at the moment, I think there's a lot of stocks um, in sitting in the middle that are going through growing pains for some reason. And perhaps a good example is Blackmore's, which had this tremendous period a couple of years ago where it got very lucky uh, with, when a celebrity in China, for example, got uh, she was there was a photo taken of her using one of Blackmore's, uh, I think it was his vitamin E cream, and all of a sudden uh, the sales took off. And so, so Blackmore's had this incredible period where the share price, I think, went up to about $220, where it's about $90 now. And, and most people have given up on Blackmore's. And it's not the world's greatest business, but it is a business where most of its problems at the moment are self-inflicted. And it hasn't been releasing enough new products. It essentially spurned the Daegu market uh, when essentially they were doing the marketing job for them in China. And all these things can be fixed. And it's got a great balance sheet, has reasonably high profit margins. They're only about half what Swiss currently reports. That's a competitor you see on the TV uh, with Ricky Ponting and the like. So there's huge room for new products, higher profit margins. And the founder there, Marcus Blackmore, has talked about in several interviews, probably half a dozen interviews, that they need to cut some staff. They've got their two staff heavy. Uh, after the amount of sales they've got in China, it was just nowhere near um, what they thought it was going to be after the big uh, tick up a couple of years ago. So there's all these things they can do and they've got a great balance sheet which allows them to invest and make these changes and now they've got a new CEO to actually take control of the business which they haven't had for a while. So this is a business that in two or three years could do really, really well from here but it's just not of interest to investors today because no one wants to sit here for two or three years not knowing what the company, how the company is going to perform in two or three years when they can just buy other stuff that's much easier to buy because it's going up or because it pays a high dividend yield today. And I think that's if, you, uh, have you, if you've got that patience, and it is really hard to have, like it's even hard as a professional investor when your funds aren't going up as fast as the market, to, to have that, um, keep that long-term faith that you're buying the right business and in time you're going to get a much better result than what the index is going to provide. But I think if I was just thinking about a theme or an area to be looking at at the moment, it's those middle ground companies where uh, things aren't going great at the moment, and there's but it's temporary pain, and the pain will go away in two to three years as these as management gets on top of the issues. And I just thought Blackmore's might be a good example. Yeah, great suggestion. I'd I'd add to that, and and just in terms of portfolio management, because I'm I'm sure all of our listeners have stocks in their portfolios that are just going up and up and up, and it's tempting just to hang on because it's nice to see stock, stocks going up. But if you're not checking in and asking yourself, you know, is this becoming overvalued? you know, is the return expectation from this price becoming so low that it's unattractive in my portfolio? You know, the, those are the questions you need to ask yourself as to whether you want to continue to hold it. Um, so, so yeah, it's difficult to do, obviously, because selling a winning position um, is never fun, um, but, it's, but it is sensible. All right, we'll leave it there for this week. Uh, thanks very much, Alex. And uh, apologies to some of the questions that we didn't answer today. Some, uh, we don't have any updates on new uh, opinions that we've talked about more recently and a few of the stocks were uh, very speculative and we didn't really have anything intelligent to add but please don't let that stop you from sending in more questions we'll do our best to answer them uh, the email address is skin in the game or one word at investmark.com.au thanks very much for listening to learn more about the income growth and small companies funds head over to investmark.com.au Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, 
send us an email at skininthegame at investsmart.com.au.